morning, everyone. Thank you, Nigel. Or thank you, Richard. Even. Uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. It's page 1168 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, last week, we described the gospel as the ultimate breath of fresh air that provides freedom. And we made the point that, that ever since the gospel was first expressed and taught and shared and revealed, that people have tried to corrupt it and distort it. And Galatians is a brief yet highly emotional letter written by the Apostle Paul to defend and to decontaminate and to clarify the gospel. And we're going to spend about nine Sunday mornings reading it together. Now, there are 12 days, 3 hours and 37 minutes left until the World Cup starts. And I realize it's really sad that I know that, but I can't wait because I love that event. And at the minute, there is a pre-tournament advert running that says this. Do the World Cup justice. See it in HD. In other words, see it in high definition. And this morning, as we continue this series, I want us to have a similar experience with the gospel. I want us to do it justice by viewing it in HD. Uh, During the week, a friend of mine who's been leading a conversational Bible study in his church, based on this letter, he shared this with me. He said, stick with Galatians and you will see the gospel in high definition clarity. I love that. I only wish that I'd thought it up. Uh, So let's read together from uh, the verse 10 of Galatians 1. We'll stand for the public reading of God's word. Galatians 1, starting at verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men or please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately to Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. 
This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. And those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. And all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Please take a seat. Just a couple of uh, initial thoughts as we we get into this. Uh, Paul asks a really interesting uh, and a heart-searching question in in verse 10. Have a look at it. And it's a question that I I want us to ask ourselves this morning. Are we, or am I, trying to please people? What is more important to you? Being a God-pleaser or a people-pleaser? I know what I want to say. I know what I should say. But in reality, I know what motivates me far more than I care to admit at times. Paul here is talking about the gospel. And he's talking about how, listen, I'm not going to alter it in any way just to please people. But I think you can take this phrase and actually apply it even further to every area and aspect of life. Because I don't know about you, but so often what I say and what I do are far more influenced and dictated by the opinions of others than they are by the smile of God. Am I more inclined to say and do the popular thing or the right thing? It's not necessarily wrong to want to please others. In fact, it would be ridiculous to suggest that it is. But what is our motivation in all that we do? Are we actually, if we strip it all back, are we actually doing what we do just to please other people? Or are we more interested in pleasing God? Paul is motivated by an intense desire to please people rather than God. And at the end of verse 10, he makes a really interesting point. He says there, do you know, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. Look, serving Jesus won't please everyone. Incidentally, what I didn't realize this week is that uh, people-pleasing is a syndrome. Uh, But even if these two books were available in Paul's day, I'm not sure he would have read them. Uh, But just an interesting thought. (laughs) In the next couple of verses, we confront a key issue regarding the gospel in high definition. And that is that it came directly from Jesus. Have a look at this. He says, listen, there's nothing man-made about this. Nothing synthetic. This gospel isn't manufactured. Paul says, I didn't receive this from any other human being. 
Nobody sat me down and taught me this. And this is so important for us to get. Nobody gave this to me. Nobody handed this over to me. What he says at the end of verse 12 is, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And here, as we mentioned last week, Paul is is clearly referring to his dramatic encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, where not only was he converted, not only was his life turned upside down and inside out, but he also received his calling. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But let me give you a definition of revelation for those who might be taking notes. The term revelation describes something made known by God to humans, and in this case Paul, that would otherwise not be known. And what Paul is doing here in this letter is he's making it absolutely clear, and I'm borrowing this next phrase from John Stott, he's making it absolutely clear that the gospel is not an invention as if my own brain had fabricated it. It's not a tradition as if some church has handed it down to me. But it's a revelation, for God had made it known to him. You see, this is not Paul's message, the gospel. It's not Paul's words, it's God's words. And for us, that is so important because it means as we read this letter, we can have total confidence in it. And the reason that we can have total confidence in Galatians is because we are reading a letter from a personal representative of Jesus Christ, an apostle, something we looked at last week. But not only are we reading a personal letter from a representative of Jesus Christ, but the message that he's sharing with us is not his message. It's God's. And it came directly from Jesus Christ. Gospel in high definition comes direct from Jesus. And Paul then goes on to develop his argument in even more detail because he's ultra king. He really is so fussy here. To make sure that anyone who reads this letter is clear that what I'm saying is completely independent from human interference. Nobody's messed about with this. And so at the end of verse 16 and into verse 17, he makes the point, listen, I didn't consult any human being. I didn't even go to Jerusalem to see or to talk to anyone like Peter or like James who were all apostles before I was. And the reason Paul is stressing this is because one of the most important aspects of the gospel in high definition is that it is a direct revelation from Jesus Christ anything else anything we add to it anything man made about it is not good enough now I hope and and this is not really a tangent that I'm about to go off on but as part of this short section it really intrigues me how Paul provides his readers with a really quick overview of his life What you have here in these verses that come next is a sort of mini-autobiography of Paul. It's a condensed version of a story. But what I want you to notice is how Paul actually tells his story. Because it provides us with a brilliant model or a great framework for those times, which may be rare, I know, but for those times whenever we get the opportunity to tell our story. And from verses 13 to 22, Paul describes his life in three distinct phases Pre-conversion, at conversion, post-conversion. And the initial phase in verses 13 and 14 refers to his life before he encountered Jesus. Then in verses 15 and 16a, 
he actually talks about his actual conversion. And then from 16b to 24, we discover a little bit more about Paul's life in the wake of meeting Jesus post-conversion. And taking that as a pattern, let me ask you a few questions. What is your story? And, And how would you tell it? Do you have a story to tell? And here's the important bit. Do you have a story to tell which hinges on Jesus? And what would you say under these three headings? Your previous way of life. Your conversion experience. Your present calling. Now before we look at Paul's in a little more detail. And I know that he tells his story here with a particular slant given his context. And that's something that we all do or should do anyway. But let me make a few additional comments just about parts two and three here. The first is that not everyone's conversion is as sudden or as blinding or as dramatic as Paul's. And that's okay. Some people can point to a very specific moment in time when they consciously and definitely made a decision to follow Jesus. And that's great. And you may be one of those people. But for many others, it can feel, or it has felt, much more like a process. There have been milestones, yes. There have been a variety of experiences. But if you were asked to identify an actual beginning, or if you were asked to tie it down to a specific moment, you would find it virtually impossible. And that is okay. Not everyone's conversion experience is Paul's, but the key issue is an awareness in your life that Jesus has changed you, has transformed you, has turned your life upside down and inside out. And that you can tell a story of that. That you can actually share how Jesus makes sense of your story. And for that to take place... It's got a hinge on Jesus. In terms of the third heading, present calling, this can also cause or has caused a certain degree of anxiety and concern amongst some Christians. Again, Paul's calling is very specific. Look at verse 16. He says, it's so that I might preach Jesus among the Gentiles. That's his calling. It's specific. It's definite. But how do we discern God's will calling for our lives it's a huge question and it can tie people in knots and I honestly take the view that God's will will encompass a broad range of options for a Christian I don't see it as a tightrope to walk where if you take one wrong turn one wrong step, then you're somehow out of God's will. I see it, and I've said this before, I see God's will as much more like a field to play in with boundaries and fences. And for some people, it's about being a great Christian husband or wife. It's about being a great Christian son or daughter. It's about serving in the local church. It's about striving for justice in the local community. It's about being a Christian with integrity in the workplace. Or it's about going to Bangladesh to share your story and God's story with a specific people group. 
One of the key issues when it comes to God's will is this, that for every Christian we have got to discern, what are my gifts? What are my God-given gifts? And how am I using those for the glory of God? What is your present calling? Can you articulate that? Can you share that part of your story with others? I know I said we're veering slightly off script a little, but let me go back to Galatians 1 and let's look at Paul's story. Because you see, in telling it, he identifies two aspects of his pre-conversion life. He says, listen, here's two things about what I used to be like. I persecuted the church and I was zealously enthusiastic for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, Paul's really saying, listen, I was a bigot and a fanatic. He's not the sort of person who was going to be easily influenced. That's what he's saying as he tells his story. You see, if he was going to change, something supernatural was going to have to happen, and it did. God stepped into his life. And Paul realizes very quickly that God was behind it all. That God took the initiative in his conversion experience Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, listen, it was God who set me apart from birth. It was God who called me by his grace. It was God who was pleased to reveal Jesus in me and to me. And the point is this. Paul's conversion is a work of Christ and so is ours. Or it's a work of God in Christ. And so is ours. Whether it's sudden or whether it's a process, God's behind it. And finally then Paul talks about his uh, post-conversion life. But as I've already mentioned, he tells this part of the story with a particular slant. Because again, he's wanting to make sure that everyone hears that what he's saying is that, listen, this gospel that I profess, that I want to share, that I want to promote, it's not been shaped by anyone else. Not even the apostles in Jerusalem. He's really reinforcing this fact that it came directly from God. And so what he says is, listen, I cleared off for three years. Follow this with me in the text. I cleared off, he says, for three years. Time to be alone with God, possibly. Time for some solitude and silence, maybe. Some have even suggested that these three years were a deliberate compensation for the three years of instructions that the disciples got, which Paul missed out on. And Paul then goes to Jerusalem, but the first time he goes, he only goes for a fortnight. And he only sees a couple of apostles, Peter and James, and then he clears off again. And this time it would seem he goes away for 14 years. And then he returns again to Jerusalem. But here's the point, and it's an important point as we engage with this letter, that after Paul's conversion, he's virtually no contact with particularly the apostles in Jerusalem, for at least 14, maybe even some would say 17 years. And so what he is really stressing and emphasizing and proving is the total independence of his gospel. Its origin, he says, is divine. It's straight from God. It doesn't come from any human being. None of it in any shape Now I know that not everyone saw it like that then and not everyone sees it like that today. But this seems to be what Paul is stressing as he tells his story. 
So, as we get into chapter 2, Paul is back in Jerusalem. But this time round, he takes a couple of people with him. When he was there for a fortnight, it seems he went on his own. This time round, he takes a couple of people with him. Two friends, Barnabas and Titus. Interesting choice of fellow travellers. Barnabas, we know, is the son of encouragement. And whenever your ministry and your message is being questioned, or it's being challenged, or it's being distorted, you need someone who's going to put an arm around your shoulder and support you. Discouragement in life and discouragement in ministry is all too readily available. And therefore, having people in your life who just simply encourage you is an amazing gift. Who encourages you in your present calling? Who is it that draws alongside you in your current ministry and puts an arm around your shoulder and just speaks positive, affirming words into your life? Or, when was the last time you encouraged someone else in their present calling? But Barnabas wasn't just an encourager. Because I also think that Paul took this guy with him to Jerusalem because, in a sense, his life proved the reality of the gospel. Now, what we discover about Barnabas elsewhere in Scripture is this. He's generous. He's a peacemaker. He's a unifying influence. And Acts 11.22 actually just describes him as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And in some ways, I honestly think Paul took Barnabas with him to Jerusalem because here was someone whose life was infused with the gospel. Do you know, I would love to be described in those terms. Just as an encourager, someone who's generous, someone who's a peacemaker, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Paul's second traveling companion is Titus. Now this could, be, uh, this could be seen as a bit of a provocative gesture on Paul's part. Because Titus was a Gentile. Barnabas was a Jew, so in some ways he wouldn't have turned too many heads when he went to Jerusalem with Paul. But Titus was a Gentile. But Paul here wasn't trying to be provocative. provocative. What he was doing is he was establishing a key truth of the gospel. A truth that the Judaizers, as we referred to last week, the false brothers, as he calls them in verse 4 there of chapter 2, the Jesus plus brigade, again, as we talked about last week, he was wanting to emphasize a truth that they couldn't quite take on board, and it's this, that Jews and Gentiles are accepted by God on the same terms. That everyone is accepted by by God in the same terms and that is through faith in Jesus which is another aspect of the gospel in high definition and to make this point Paul highlights the fact Titus wasn't circumcised but more importantly if you look at the text it says he wasn't compelled to be circumcised by the pillars in Jerusalem or by the leaders in Jerusalem because they clearly didn't think, and this was, this was so crucial for Paul's context, they clearly didn't think that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Jesus was enough. It was Jesus plus nothing else. And the Judaizers, they would have wanted the leaders in Jerusalem to support their mindset. They would have wanted the apostles to actually affirm their different gospel, as Paul called it in chapter 1. But they didn't. 
Which is why in verse 4, Paul is able to describe what the true gospel provides. He says, you know what it provides? Freedom. Freedom in Christ. The Judaizers, what they wanted to do, they wanted to add a whole bunch of rules and regulations and stipulations to the good news. They wanted people to become one of them. They wanted people to join their group. They wanted to tie people up with a whole pile of extra requirements. But Paul was adamant. Do you know what the gospel does? The gospel sets people free. If you love someone, set them free. You see, insisting on extra religious rituals is a nonsense. Jesus plus anything else is a nonsense. And the reason it's a nonsense, according to verse 5 in a sense, is this, that God does not judge by external appearances. Yeah, we do. We often do this with each other. We often make a judgment on whether someone is a Christian or not a Christian by what they do or don't do. God doesn't judge by external appearances. We all know that God is and always has been interested in the heart because salvation is first and foremost a transformation of the heart. And it's only God in Christ who can change that, can change the real you and me. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's all about who Jesus is and what he has done. Back to chapter 1, what has he done? He's given himself for our sins to deliver us. Jesus has done it all. And if we believe that, if we embrace and live in the light of that, then there's no other necessary requirements. Jesus is enough. And the Judaizers, they would have been really upset, really upset by the leaders in the church in Jerusalem that they didn't insist on Titus's circumcision. But to add further insult to injury, there are two more indicators that these pillars of the church actually endorsed Paul's gospel. And we're nearly done. To start with, here's how we know they endorsed Paul's gospel. Verse 6, Paul says, These men added nothing to my message. No editing was needed. Nothing had to be changed. Nothing had to be amended. You see, the Judaizers probably thought, do you see this guy Paul? He's watering it all down. He's reducing it for the Gentiles. He's making it easier for them to become Christians. He's redesigning his gospel to fit the audience. He's adapting it to make it more appealing. But the apostles in Jerusalem, they didn't agree. They sought for what it was. They said, no, it's not. It's a complete message. It's added to free. What they did recognize was that Paul's primary audience was different. What he and Peter preached was the same. The only difference was who they preached to. Verse 7 makes that really clear. Same message, different recipients. Know your context and speak into it. Share your story in your context. But make sure the message you're sharing is the gospel. And the second indicator comes in verse 9, where the esteemed pillars, as they're called, they extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, which is far more than a simple handshake. This was a highly symbolic gesture, a very public saying confirming that, listen, we agree with Paul's message, publicly endorsed. 
Now, in some ways, just as I finish, in some ways, a lot of this can seem quite removed from our context. I know that. Because what are the connections here for us? And I've tried to make some as we've gone along. But how can we relate to these early church discussions? How do we actually make sense of these debates and these struggles that were happening years ago? I mean, are they relevant to us sitting here this morning? And for me, the answer is yes. Because what we're dealing with here is the ability to see the gospel in high definition. It's to see it with added clarity. You see, people may be happy with standard definition TV. But HD is so much better. And whenever you see something in high definition, you don't want to go back to a poorer version. And in the first century, people wanted to distort the clarity of the gospel. They wanted to tamper with its sharpness. They wanted to blur the crispness. They wanted to reduce the resolution. And Paul was having none of it. The message he had been given to share was crystal clear. Here's the gospel in high definition. It's direct from Jesus. Everyone's accepted by God on the same terms. That is through faith in Jesus. This gospel sets people free. doesn't tie them up in knots. It's additive free. And it's publicly endorsed by the apostles. And let's do the gospel justice by seeing it in HD.